It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, January 7th, 2022. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. All the ways to listen live, including through our partners at Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Many ways to listen live at GuyBensonShow.com. Across our great affiliates, Dotting the Nation. And, of course, if you miss any of it, there's a podcast for free every day on demand, no charge. Totally free, including bonus Benson on the weekends. All the info for all of that, as I say, is at GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, my very busy week of television continues through the weekend. Saturday and Sunday, the big show on Fox News Channel at 5 p.m. It's kind of like the 5, but on weekends with a rotating cast. I do it from time to time. I'll be one of the four at 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, FNC, for the big show. Hope you will tune in or DVR those programs. On today's radio show, listen to this lineup. We are packed On a Friday. Like, we're not just lollygagging into the weekend here. We've got a lot to bring to you, starting with Jimmy Fallon, our Fox News radio colleague. That's always a riot. He'll be joining us later this hour. Charles C.W. Cook in the next hour. Worth listening for the accent alone, but also the substance. Congressman Darren LaHood, Republican of Illinois, he's going to react to the outrageous now day three of school closures in Chicago at the hands of the Chicago Teachers Union. I see one of the most prestigious children's hospitals in the country has put out a report effectively begging policymakers to keep schools open during COVID no matter what for many reasons. The science is crystal clear. The union does not care. And these kids are suffering. Congressman LaHood from Illinois will react coming up in our next hour, Larry Kudlow will also be here, host of Kudlow on FBN. A new jobs report out today. We will talk to him about that. Probably some other stuff as well. Always enjoy catching up with Larry. And then, as Greg Gutfeld says, the evil Shannon Bream will cap things off in our happy hour, our final hour. A significant day at the Supreme Court where two cases involving various federal mandates involving covid were being argued before the court, oral arguments. One of the justices in particular beclowned herself with multiple pieces of misinformation that she put out during oral arguments. Such bad misinformation that perhaps she could have gotten herself suspended on social media. Oh, just kidding. They'd only do that if she were a conservative. I won't tell you who it is. Which justice really made a fool of herself? With COVID misinformation in her very emotionalist, non-scientific, non-legal arguments? Here's the clue. It was Justice Sotomayor. (laughs) But we'll get you the details and fact check 
that justice coming up later in the show. Fox News alert as we get going here. Case count, 58.4 million confirmed cases all in throughout the pandemic. Multiply that by three, four, five. That's closer to the real number. The death toll in the United States throughout the pandemic from COVID, with or of COVID, we should say, 832,392. And I'm glad to reiterate something that I've said at this point. I'm glad that we're finally allowed to talk about that distinction, the with versus of. I guess with Democrats now in charge and they're starting to sweat about the pandemic not being over and the virus not being shut down the way Biden promised, now we're allowed to engage in some nuance in ways that we weren't supposed to during the previous administration or even last year. Now, there's so many people out there on the left committed to non-nuance that it's now a struggle on the left, actually, sort of these internecine fights, including with the teachers union in Chicago right now. But New York, as we mentioned earlier in the week, is now breaking down their hospital numbers, for example, which I think is good. They should have done this all along everywhere on deaths, on hospitalizations, so we actually get a clearer picture of how bad the pandemic is, how dangerous, how deadly it is. And of course, the pandemic's been terrible. I'm not a pandemic truther. I'm a this is serious, take it seriously, get vaccinated type of person. I've been that all along. But New York right now, of their hospitalizations, quote, of COVID... About half of them are incidental, not related to COVID. People who just show up, they've got some other thing, a broken bone, some other problem. They have to get tested under the policy, and it comes back positive. It's not the reason that they're there. It's about half of all the hospitalizations in New York right now are because of that. In some places, it's like two-thirds. Among children, we'll talk about this later, it's very high incidental hospitalizations. So those numbers have been inflated the whole time. Which is not to say it's a made-up pandemic. It's not. But this gives us a more specific, granular look at what really is actually happening. And of the COVID deaths, I don't know how inflated the number is. How many people were counted as a COVID death who died of something completely different. And then afterwards are like, oh, this person also had COVID. Put it down as a COVID death. I don't know what that number is. I wish we did. I wish we had a sense of that. But... With or of COVID, the death total, 832,392. I mean, look, even if half the number, if it was inflated by double, which I think that's probably high. I don't think it's double. But to put that number way out there, let's say it was half of these cases were dying with as opposed to of. That's still, what, 416,000 Americans dying of COVID? That is awful. And the official number, at least for now, indeed, is double that, 800,000 plus. The Dow is up 110 points right now, trading at 36,343. Not bad considering today's jobs report, which is where we begin our show. Another big miss. Not my words. That was CNBC describing the December jobs report. And by the way, this was before Omicron really started to ravage the country in terms of cases, which, of course, have had all sorts of disruptions. This was mostly pre-Omicron, and this is how they reacted over at CNBC 
to the jobs report in December, cut 27 earlier today. 199,000, another big miss here. Uh, November revised up to just 249 from 210,000. Private sector jobs were 211, so it looks like we might have lost some government jobs there. Another big miss. That's the bad news, and it's not really all that spinnable because the number that was expected by the consensus of economists was more than double that. So it was a significant whiff. That's the bad news, the top line. There's some better news in there as well. Some revisions of the last two months came up. Wages are up, although that's getting canceled out by inflation. The unemployment rate is down. Workforce participation is actually decent, and some of this is just people feel like they can quit their jobs because they can go get another job. So it's a mixed bag in the economy, I would say right now. But what it should be is a V-shaped recovery, which we're not seeing under this president and his policies. And Biden's cranky. Biden's cranky about all of this, and he went on a bit of a rant earlier, partisan rant. Here is the president, cut 28. I have a few responses to this. Listen. Now I hear Republicans say today that uh, my talking about this strong record shows that I don't understand. I don't understand. A lot of people are still suffering, they say. Well, they are. Or that I'm not focused on inflation. Malarkey. They want to talk down the recovery because they voted against the legislation that made it happen. They voted against the tax cuts for middle class families. They voted against the funds we needed to reopen our schools, to keep police officers and firefighters on the job, to lower health care premiums. They voted against the funds we're now using to buy COVID booster shots and more antiviral pills. So this was an attack, a broadside against the Republicans uh, from President Biden. He said a number of things there. His biggest assertion is that the Republicans are talking down the recovery. Look, it was a miss by more than 50%. The numbers aren't where they need to be. The inflation problem is obviously hammering Americans. No one has to talk that down. It's lived reality for people. And by the way, the out party often talks down the economy. Democrats did it for four years, especially when the economy was awesome under Donald Trump. They were still pretending that it wasn't. Because they had voted against the tax cuts. They had voted against, the Democrats had, everything that helped the economy get to the pre-COVID roaring status that we all remember. The Democrats had opposed all of it. And then it was working out amazingly well across the board. Workers at every level. All the demographic boxes. Democrats had to deny it then because they hated Trump and wanted to beat him. Now, Biden's accusing Republicans of doing the same thing, but he's claiming, he's sort of asserting here, that the Republicans have to talk down the recovery because they voted against the thing that caused the recovery, which in his mind is the government, which is ridiculous. There were trillions of dollars in COVID relief passed on a bipartisan basis in the year 2020 under President Trump and a bipartisan Congress. That's what happened. In 2021, the Democrats had this massive slush fund boondoggle, $2 trillion, a tiny fraction of which, like 9% of it, actually went to COVID, which is why we have a testing shortage, for example. He said, oh, this money is used to keep schools open. Well, not in places like Chicago, 
What are you saying about that, Mr. President? Your buddies in the teachers union. Not a word personally from him against his political allies and funders in the teachers unions using our money, taxpayer money, to feed the Democrats. That bill was unbelievably wasteful. There were Republican alternatives that would have spent a lot of money on COVID relief, things like tests, for example, which we could use right now. They were more targeted. It wasn't this big, pie-in-the-sky, one-size-fits-all, government-spending orgy that the Democrats unleashed. It was much more reasonable and targeted at COVID. You know what happened to those Republican alternatives? Filibustered at the end of 2020 by the Democrats. Oh, yes, the old racist filibuster. That Jim Crow relic. It's wrong. It's racist. This is how they argue now. The redneck Republicans, these racist Republicans are using the filibuster, which is racist and wrong. They were the ones filibustering everything for six years, including targeted COVID relief. Instead, they won the election. They spent $2 trillion. God knows where that money's going. It's not going to the stuff that it ought to be going to, in large measure. And yet Biden wants to pretend that the Republicans are against the recovery because they opposed that ridiculous piece of legislation that is absolutely not fueling the recovery. That's his spin. I also like the fact that he was attacking Republicans on tax cuts for the middle class. Republicans cut taxes for the middle class. In 2017, every Democrat voted no. And said the sky was falling, Armageddon, the end of the world. Those were Pelosi's words when they voted against middle class tax cuts that the Republicans passed and Trump signed. And by the way, every single House Democrat except for one just a few weeks ago voted to raise taxes on millions of middle class families. So give me a break, Mr. President, with that. These talking points are so weak. He wants to pretend that $2 trillion of heavily unrelated so-called COVID relief, much of which gets spent in the out years on nothing to do with COVID, is what's causing this recovery, which is sort of a halting recovery at best in some ways. You know what's actually causing this recovery, fueling this recovery? Republican states. Republican-led states are the backbone of of this recovery that he's trying to attribute to some bill they pass in Washington. Of the top 20 states in the country on building back better, if you want to say that, to use a, to borrow a term, on recovering jobs since the pandemic and during the pandemic, on the job recovery front of the top 20 states, 17 of them, 17 out of 20, are governed by Republicans. I'm sure that's a coincidence. Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Texas, South Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, South Carolina, Florida, Tennessee, Indiana, Missouri, New Hampshire. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Joe Biden's attacking the Republicans. He should be thanking the Republicans for ignoring his policies, ignoring his attacks against them, and actually having economies that are working. We'd be in really bad shape if not for the Republican states ignoring the Biden-Fauci 
agenda and doing something different. You can't have it both ways, Mr. President. You can't claim credit for what the Republicans are largely building at the state level while attributing a nonsense bill packed with unrelated spending and attacking the Republicans. Again, you should be on your knees thanking Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and Doug Ducey and Chris Sununu and a bunch of these guys for keeping this economy and this recovery afloat, despite, in some ways, your best efforts with bad policy. And that's the memo. Just getting started on a Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I mentioned at the top that report that was put out by the prestigious Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Once again laying out the science that schools need to be open, even during COVID. They could just, like, CC the teachers' union in Chicago and elsewhere. Relatedly, just to beat this drum again, more data. I know it's so annoying for me to be mentioning data and science, because a lot of this is just a religion to these people at this point, but there's a big study out of the UK. The BBC reported on it. A review has found that evidence for using masks in schools to reduce the spread of COVID is, quote, inconclusive. Data was taken from 1,300 schools. There was barely any difference in outcomes between schools which mandated masks and those which didn't. And by the way, they have not been mandating masks overwhelmingly in the U.K., and it's gone fine. When they looked at all the data, there was no statistically significant reduction in COVID cases being passed in schools where masks were required versus where they were not. The review also found that the use of face coverings could harm learning, with 94% of school leaders and teachers saying that the masking made communication between students and pupils more difficult. So there's a clear downside to masking and no clear upside to masking based on yet more data. But the pro-science people say, mask the children down to age three. It's nuts. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the program, I'm Guy Benson. Happy Friday. Thanks for being here. We're joined now by Jimmy Fallon, back by unpopular demand, host of Fox Across America on Fox News Radio, Monday through Friday, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on many of these same stations. Jimmy, good to have you. Happy Friday. 
Yo, Guy Benson, uh, I don't know who wrote this into your contract, but you're right. Your agents have failed you by forcing me onto the show as consistently as you've <laughs> been made to have me. But you know what? I like the strategy here because you're getting it out of your system today because we're going to be doing TV together tomorrow on the Big we Saturday are, although, show. Are you going to be well enough to do it? Your voice sounds a little, uh, little under the weather. No, I'm, I'm just, you know what it is, man? No, I'm, uh, I'm a little beat up still because I'm, I'm still sobering up from last week's New Year's Eve down in Nashville. And it's funny. When you guys came back from break to save a horse ride at Cowboy, I had like yeah. PTSD because I saw John Rich sing that live, which was wonderful. What's not wonderful is there's a level of passion in Nashville, guy, that's like somewhere between hospitality and a hazing ritual. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And yep. then people are just firing beers at you out of a T-shirt gun. I'm pretty beat up. There's a Vegas mentality there to some extent. Nash Vegas is what they call it. Yes. Well, you know what the difference is? Like Vegas, I, I mean, not to take it there, uh, but like Vegas, you come home with like an STD and a baby from a stripper. Nashville, <laughs> oh you come home God. with a shot glass and a pair of cowboy boots, you know? So it's a tamer Vegas is what I think. Okay. Wow. Um Oh, we didn't dump out. I thought that was it. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Thank you for that. We're just learning so many things about Jimmy. See, we're not going to be hosting the show together in studio, which is fine because uh, that's great. I just feel like you might need to get tested. Not for COVID. Uh, another kind of testing, apparently. Uh, so we will be we will be on TV together tomorrow and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern, the big show. And it's it's four of us. So who else is on? Is it Lisa Booth? I think Alicia Acuna will be mm -hmm. the ladies, and then we'll be and the you. dudes on the show. And this is your debut on the big show. Yes. Is that correct? This are is, you uh, excited? Are you nervous? I'm pumped up. The issue for real, Guy Benson, and you know this about me, is Sunday is NFL Sunday. And the idea of having me on live television while my gambling bets are paying off in real time, one way or the other, is risky. <laughs> right. Like, Saturday's yeah. going to be great. Sunday, we're a missed field goal away from an F-bomb on live TV. I've been well, upfront about that. The good news about that, though, is the late games start at 4, right? Mm -hmm. Or like the, like the second slate yeah. of games. And the first slate of games should be ending right around then. Cause they kick Are you off saying at one. like my fate isn't hanging in the balance, you're saying, in the hour that we're on the air? Right. We're on the air from 5 <laughs> to 6 p.m. So unless you have prop bets about like how many field goals are made in a quarter or something and your whole, you know, your house and your mortgage is dependent on that, I think you'll probably be okay. And then you degenerate gambler can run out of the studio at 6 p.m. and go catch the fourth quarter and then decide whether or not you have to jump off a bridge. <laughs> it's never a bridge. I usually am resourceful. I'll usually start by putting on the blonde wig and walking 11th Avenue for a little while, trying to make money the old-fashioned way. Yeah. Uh, but if it doesn't Again, come to that, if it's a slow okay, business here. week, yeah. Get tested, folks. Twice <laughs> over now. Back-to-back -back references. <laughs> Uh, so I want to talk to you about this, Jimmy. Did you see the story that the Democrats are so desperate to try to change the mind of Joe Manchin on ending the filibuster? By the way, it's not just him. It's also Kirsten Sinema. There's a few other Democrats who don't want to do it. But it's like, you know, all Manchin all the time. So they've gone all out. Politico has this story. It's just this pile on where they're trying to convince him to do a change to the filibuster rules. And they have some of his like... It's like everyone, like his childhood friends, they're yeah. reaching out. They're like, you know, they, they can get 
like Princess Leia, you can get you know one of those uh, hon- holograms of his of his deceased mother. They're like, please, Joe, <laughs> do it. They've got Bill Clinton calling the guy. They've got Oprah yeah. calling the guy. I think he loves the attention. I just think this is this is weird to bring in. Well, yeah, you know, Oprah yeah, is Oprah the big swing vote in West Virginia. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, that's hilarious, by the way. Um, this is such an indictment of their policies as a whole. Like, you're not busting out Oprah because you're having an easy time selling your ideas. Obviously, you're busting them out because nothing else is working. This is where we are now. You know, and right. it, what they're Break doing glass. the mansion. Break Oprah yeah. glass in case of emergency. <laughs> in case of emergency, shove Stedman out of the way and break glass. But yes. <laughs> This is what happens is that they're pressuring Manchin and Cinema the way they've pressured everybody. I mean, the business model for them the last four years has been social pressure campaigns. That's a lot of what identity politics is, is vote with us or you're a monster, you know, and they're doing that to Manchin. But they won't break because the, obviously the superpower he has uh, is one. Obviously, it's not a superpower that he likes attention, but he clearly does. But two, uh, representing a state like West Virginia, he doesn't care because nobody in West Virginia cares. There's no world where he becomes less popular in West Virginia if he doesn't side with this. And of course, you know, and you've mentioned the hypocrisy of Chuck Schumer even wanting to do away with the filibuster after all of those impassioned pleas he made about keeping it back when yeah. Republicans were floating the idea. Oh, yeah. And it's like some people, thank God, and I hopefully this leads to more. Some people are above you know, the chicanery, the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy of Washington. And we actually need more Joe Manchins. It's not something yep. I ever thought I'd hear myself say. But wouldn't you love it if we could get a few more Joe Manchins out there and a few less? Oh, I don't know. Marjorie Taylor Greens, to be fair about our own party. Yeah. No, I mean, sign me up for all of that. What you just described. I like more sensible Republicans and yep. fewer nonsensible Democrats. You also referenced Chuck Schumer. I mean, he literally he literally called a proposed Republican idea to limit the judicial filibuster, doomsday for democracy. That was his term. <laughs> he said it was banana republic dictator stuff. The Republicans didn't do it, by the way. Then the Democrats did it, and he voted for it. Then he said, oh, I regret that. We shouldn't have done it. Now he wants to do it again, and they're, I guess, dispatching Oprah and to do this now on legislation. <laughs> like, is there, well, you want like, to know what it- yeah, please explain. Please explain to me, like, if they're gonna, because the squad's saying we, we, we have to, we have to challenge these people. We need primary challenges. What is the ad gonna look like in West Virginia in a primary <laughs> election against Joe Manchin? Joe Manchin said no to Oprah on the filibuster. <laughs> like, is that gonna move one professor at the University of West Virginia? It's gonna move no. one vote. No, they are keg rolling right now. But what they're betting on. Uh, and this is, you know, this this is part of politics that, you know, I kind of learned and absorbed as a cab driver back in the era of Obama. Whenever you have a transformative candidate or a transformative person involved in politics, it brings so many new people to the conversation who have no background in the precedence. So like what they're banking on by bringing in Oprah is creating this whole new wave of voters who have no idea how hypocritical and shameful this is. All they know is Oprah's pushing for it, so yeah. it must be good. Yeah, and the they're big banking Bill Clinton, though, Chuck Schumer, Oprah constituency in <laughs> West Virginia. <laughs> And they're, but that's what it is. They, I, exactly. Well, that's the fool's 
Zarin is that they're banking on the fact that that triumvirate has any say with a bunch of people who I love in West Virginia who happen to have Natty Light and Mountain Dew coming out of the two faucets in their kitchen. These are pure, <laughs> simple, wonderful people who don't care. That's why I think it's hilarious. Like, I that's want them to do more of they it. They voted Joe Manchin. They voted for a yeah. governor who switched parties because that's the direction that state is going. Yep. Now, relatedly, like, so we got mm-hmm. the Oprah thing, the, the power of celebrity. Did you see, and honestly, when I first heard about this, I thought it was a joke. I thought mm-hmm. it was Babylon B parody. Now, it was mm-hmm. real on the January 6th anniversary, which we took very seriously. It was a terrible day in this country. Should never happen again. The Democrats, of course, wanted to turn it into a big show, make it a lot about politics, justify all their various power grabs based on January 6th. So they did their moment of silence. And then Pelosi, like, tossed it over to Lin-Manuel Miranda via Zoom, and the cast of Hamilton did a Zoom performance for January 6th. Here's a little bit of what it sounded like. I swear this actually happened. It was on C-SPAN. This is real. Let's listen together to Cut 25. Dear Theodosia, what to say to you? You have my eyes, you have your okay. mother's name. And then it goes on. They had various people who'd played the part. I love the show. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius. I think it's an amazing, actually very pro-America musical. That's a beautiful number. It is a super, super weird thing to me. I, I, like, do the Democrats yeah. know how to do anything else other than like a celebrity production? And do they have any self-awareness about how incredibly cringeworthy this was? No, no, I was just going to say that. They they do lead the league in cringe. Do you remember that kneeling photo they did in the Capitol Rotunda? Oh, with the Kente cloth? Yeah, with the Kente oh, cloth yeah. on. Oh, I, I love that. Well, no, that was don't most, forget, Nancy Pelosi yeah. thanked George Floyd for dying oh, when his God, murderer was convicted. Remember that? Yeah. Thank you, George. I mean, come on. It's like we're living in the death of shame. What was so spectacular last night about the whole thing is they have the big candlelight vigil on the steps of the Capitol and managed to conduct the first candlelight vigil in history, not to mention one of the people who died at the event they're commemorating. You know, I don't run like the Ashley Babbitt Radio Appreciation Fund, but at the same time, you know, they clearly took the narrative of the Capitol and tried to co-opt it into something else. This is a real frustration I have, Guy. It's so rare in this day and age to have consensus on anything. The two times we've really had visual consensus in this country, uh, both tragedies, both horrific occurrences, but the death of George Floyd in the Capitol, anybody who watched either of those two things was like, this is horrible. We had consensus, but it wasn't really politically viable. So the Democrats took us from a place of consensus and repurposed the meaning of what we had just witnessed and turned it into something we couldn't agree on. See, like the George, thing is, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say uh, in response to that point, what I got more of uh, sort of head scratcher out of was not so much that they didn't mention the rioter who was shot. Yeah. yeah, and I like look mm. when you when you're storming the Capitol, like play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I, you know, I'm not, yep. I'm not. I'll give uh, you that. I, I'm not a super um, sad person that that happened. Mm-hmm. I think that you huh. you know you you storm the Capitol and the House chambers, bad things are going to happen. You're warned, etc. What they did do was they honored a Capitol Police officer, in the context of January 6th, who wasn't killed on January 6th. He was killed by a black supremacist months later who was like a Louis Farrakhan guy. And they lumped Mm -hmm. him in with the January 6th officers, totally different events. I thought that was weird. 
Last word, Jimmy. Weird, disingenuous, everything we've come to expect from our politics in this day and age. Yeah, Happy Friday, everybody. Oh, yeah. There's never oh, yeah. been a dumber time to be alive, Guy Benson. You know that, and I know that. But Highly man, dumb. I'm, I'm thankful. Highly dumb, and we will try to make it less dumb on the big show tomorrow and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Jimmy Fallon, my guest, plus myself and two others. Hope you'll tune in for that. Happy Friday, Jimmy. Happy New Year. Appreciate it. We'll be right back on the Guy Benson Show. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, California, which I just read, they are considering doubling their taxes. Doubling their taxes. (laughs) which would be like so much higher than any other state by far. And they'd have to do that to even come close to paying for their universal health care that they're talking about doing. I hope they do it. Just go for it. Do it and be legends, you guys. And then every other state in the union should have some sort of uh, rule that if you show up from California fleeing, you cannot vote for the Democrats in the new state for at least a decade. I'm sure that's unconstitutional, but that should be the rule, in my opinion, if I were king. Like, they're trying to find new ways to fail through big government, equity, and wokeness in the state of California. Well, anyway, they've extended their statewide mask mandate even further for the next month plus. It's going to expire next week. They've uh, tacked on another month. And as we've heard from a lot of experts... The masks that most people use are totally worthless against Omicron. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, he said they don't help. The cloth masks that we all wear to check a box, useless. One of the top doctors that they use on CNN who's much more pro-restriction than a lot of other doctors that we have here, she has admitted that the cloth masking at this point is basically just face decorations. Even though it has real consequences in places like schools, as we've discussed many times, including earlier. But it, this is safetyism. It's theater. And California wants to show how sciencey they are, even if the science doesn't line up. It's sort of their version of science. I call it political science. So their political science demands that the masks stay on, and so they will for another month, at least, in California, even though it's not helping stop the Omicron wave, which is just ripping through that state and many other places. Now, I did see, because the Super Bowl is supposed to be out there in California, and the NFL is reportedly exploring some backup options for the Super Bowl in case the COVID cases get too high or it's enough of a problem that maybe it would threaten the Super Bowl going off the way that the NFL wants it to, so they're reportedly looking elsewhere. Texas was mentioned in particular. I think it'd be fun if Georgia made a pitch, because Major League Baseball stole the All-Star game from Atlanta and from Georgia, Then the Braves turned right around and won the World Series anyway, which was delicious. Maybe Governor Kemp could make a pitch for the NFL to come and move their Super Bowl from a blue state, lockdown state, to the free state of Georgia, at least for now, as long as Stacey Abrams isn't governor. Now, my prediction is California leadership will not allow the Super Bowl to get away from them. Just from a perspective of avoiding a painful political humiliation, if the Super Bowl 
picks up its stakes, the NFL, and moves to Texas or one of these other states, that will look so bad and embarrassing for California. Gavin Newsom will just to change the rules. They'll make exceptions. They'll do a carve-out, a little asterisk. This is what they do. right? If you need that blowout and you're Speaker Pelosi, you show up and you do it because you're you, and you matter, unlike the other people. If you want to have a nice, fancy dinner at the French Laundry with no masks on and just relax a little bit, you do it if you're Gavin Newsom because you're you and you're the governor and you're going to get reelected by 30 points anyway because it's California. So if they need to, they will intervene, these officials, and they will make sure they will move heaven and earth to keep that game in that state. Because just the gloating alone from Texans as they steal their population and attract people out of that state as people are fleeing California already, the Super Bowl leaving, I think, would be a little too on the nose in the symbolism The football spiking, if you will, from Governor Abbott or someone else might be too much. Can you imagine if they went to Florida? Oh, the meltdown. Oh, the meltdown. I don't want to even think about it because I get too excited. It's not going to happen. If California needs to completely change their science, quote-unquote, the political science, on a dime to preserve the Super Bowl, they're going to do it. But I think it's interesting that they are even talking about maybe moving the Super Bowl. As some of these California onerous restrictions, pointless at this stage, certainly, restrictions continue and continue. I'm actually surprised that we don't see teachers' unions doing what they're doing in Chicago, out in California. If they're like, hang on, we're the craziest people in this state. How dare you, Chicago? Your move, San Francisco. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Charles Cook will be here. Looking forward to that conversation. It's straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour on the guy benson show happy friday thanks for tuning in happy new year as well i'm guy benson glad to have you along check me out on the big show tomorrow and sunday 5 p.m eastern fox news channel i'll be co-hosting both of those dates GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. With us now is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review, who, starting January 24th, will be teaching a four-week online course titled The Right to Bear Arms, A History. It will be fascinating. He knows his stuff on this subject in particular. You can sign up, if you're interested, for that course at GetChapter.com. Dot app, getchapter.app. You can go to Charles' personal website, that's an option, or look him up on Twitter or Facebook. All the information is there. I recommend it. Charles, great to have you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. You know, I have to say this. I'm starting to get a little bit jealous of everyone moving to Florida. I mean, you were in some ways a trailblazer. Now, a lot of our fellow conservatives have truly had enough. I think you were... Connecticut or New York, you decamped to Florida years ago. Carol Markowitz is headed down there. Uh, my friend Dave Rubin just got there. Everyone's having dinner with Ron DeSantis. I'm, I'm getting some major FOMO. 
Well, there's nothing to uh, stop you coming in. If you can make it work, Guy, we'd love to have you. It's, uh, it's fine down here. I mean, you, you often say, come in, the weather is fine, but uh, it really is fine in uh, Florida. And, and better than that, uh, it's a very well-run state. And I think that's probably the one thing people miss. It's not just that I agree with the policies in Florida, which I do, but it's that it's a very well-run state. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not a mess, which is nice having come out of the Northeast. You know, I would be looking a little bit harder at it. It's a little difficult with my job and, and so on and so forth, but I'd be maybe exploring it more seriously if Glenn Youngkin had not won the governor's race in my state, and he will be sworn in in just a matter of days, and I'm uh, really very much looking forward to that in Virginia. Charles, I want to ask you a few things on a few different topics. First, you've been commenting on some regulations and rules and restrictions announced at Yale university up in new haven i know that yale is not alone in this respect there's been some absolute madness playing out particularly on college campuses i don't know if there's like a certain level of craziness there or i don't know exactly what it is a neurosis that is particularly prone to infecting institutions of higher learning i know at my alma mater northwestern they have banned, at least for the first couple weeks of the, the new quarter, students from attending home basketball games. So we've played and lost two important home basketball games with no students there, but everyone else is allowed. The paying public is allowed. Adult senior citizens, they're all in the arena. Students, young, healthy people, not allowed. I don't understand how any of this makes sense. Yale, I think, was telling students that they can't even go eat at restaurants outdoors. There's no science at all behind any of it, and yet you have students, some of them are objecting and, and sort of demanding answers from the colleges, but it seems like these universities are going to DEFCON 5 constantly, totally independent of the science. Yeah, so I, I think you're right in saying that this sort of pathology is particularly acute at institutions such as universities. And we know that, of course, because so many of the terrible ideas that we grapple with every day in politics come out of those universities. In fact, they seem only to be believed in those universities. But what interests me slightly more is why they're getting away with it. And the answer to that question, I think, is that they have their students over a barrel. Now, I've written a lot about the credentialism of higher education, which I think is a real risk to the American dream and our meritocratic society. I have no problem with Yale or Harvard or Northwestern or wherever. Uh, I'm not anti-university. I'm sure they provide good educations. I enjoyed my time at Oxford. But there is a tendency in our culture to elevate people who have a certain sort of credential, say a university degree, and to denigrate people who don't, even though many of those people are very successful and happy and accomplished. A plumber, for example, is a skilled job. And I think if you look at what's happening uh, at Yale in particular, they really could have gone much further than they did and got away with it. Because once you have the chance to get that degree, to get that piece of paper, you right. will do almost anything to see it through, which is why in a different context, People line up for hours at the DMV. They need their driver's license. It's not optional. Why do people spend hours on the phone with the IRS? They need to sort out their taxes. It's not optional. And we've reached the point at which we have created a culture in which people feel they need to get 
a degree at all costs. And so the staff at Yale clearly have got around and said, well, we will set up the coming year in a way that benefits us completely. These rules don't apply to the staff. They, in a sense, protect the staff if the staff are so scared of COVID and the students just have to live with it. And I think because so many of the elite institutions have sort of looked at one another, whether they've colluded directly or everyone's just waiting to see what the other peer institutions might do, and they all end up landing roughly in the same place, there isn't the option to, for example, pick up and move like you did to Florida. You can't just be a Yale student and say, all right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go to Columbia, or I'm going to go to a similarly situated elite-level university where I can see my name on this piece of paper with a prestigious name at the top, and I'll get that diploma, but I can actually have a good college experience and do student activities and be in classrooms with my peers and not have all these disruptions. There's kind of a monopoly here where it's this group think they're all doing the same thing, and therefore students grumble, students protest, but ultimately they endure and they grit their teeth and they do it for the reason that you just described. And it's rational to do so. I should say, I don't blame the students for behaving in this way. If you get into Yale, which is an achievement, and you have a chance to spend the rest of your life with a piece of paper that says Yale on it, which will probably lead to a higher salary, it'll open certain doors, uh, it will yield certain introductions, yeah, you should, uh, you should probably suck it up and... Uh, and get on with it. But I, I'm more interested in the incentives that we've created as a culture, and I don't think that they're healthy. Yeah. And I also feel bad for these kids because I remember being that age. It wasn't that long ago. It was pretty long ago, longer than I'd like to admit. But my fondest memories from college are things that would not be permitted right now at a lot of these schools. It would be a totally different experience. And that sucks because. That's the stuff that you remember for a lifetime and the friendships that you forge and all of it. In any case, Charles, let's shift from this cultural issue and colleges to another form of the ivory tower, I would argue. Here in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Capitol building, the Senate in particular, you've been writing about Chuck Schumer and the Senate Democrats and the filibuster and their various gyrations that they're performing to create a new position for themselves that has no relation to their previous positions. It's just sort of uh, careening along based on their expedient interests from moment to moment. It's what they often seem to do, especially in the Democratic Party, particularly on this issue. It's very short-sighted. There's only a handful of Democrats willing to publicly state that they're not in favor of this short-sighted gambit. What's your overall take on this? I think that we're reaching the point at which there are, in essence, two Senates. There is the real Senate, which is 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats, uh, which features not 50 Elizabeth Warrens on the Democratic side, but a wide uh, array of politicians, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And then there is... The fake Senate, the Senate of Joe Biden's imagination, the Senate of Chuck Schumer's imagination, the Senate that the squad would like to exist. And this is a 1937 style Democratic supermajority chamber with the party in lockstep with a mandate from the general public. And it doesn't exist. And all of the conversations that we have in the press are much more towards the fake Senate than toward the real one. 
You look at the months and months spent on Build Back Better, the number of times that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have been asked if they will abolish the filibuster. They're still saying no. And so what we've got now is the bizarre spectacle of a group of bipartisan senators saying we would be prepared to look at fixing the Electoral Count Act, which was probably um, the, the biggest problem last year after the election, uh, and the Democratic Party saying, no, 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 we don't want that. We want to pass sweeping legislation that is unpopular in the country, that has no Republican support, that is opposed by one of our own senators, instead of doing that. And I don't understand it. I mean, aside from the merits of this, the best thing we can do to rationalize our elections and prevent what happened last year from happening again is to fix the Electoral Count Act. But aside from that, it seems clear by now, does it not, that the only things that are going to happen in this federal setup um, will happen when Democrats and Republicans work together, as we saw with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I opposed, but, but I think is popular in the country at large. Um, and I just don't think Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer have yet grasped that they have to deal with the real Senate, the one that actually exists, um, rather than the one that, that they wish exists. Yeah, I find it odd that they would pivot from a failure on Build Back Better, for which they did not have the votes, to another experiment, i.e. a federal takeover of our elections, for which they do not have the votes, that would require a blowing up of the Senate rules, for which they also lack the votes. I mean, this is, this is the master class that we're witnessing in legislation and the legislative process with not all that much time left before the midterm election. It's a choice they're making. Is part of it, Charles, last question briefly, the media's position in all of this? Because I saw someone tweeting earlier, in a sane world, these reporters would be chasing Democrats around, confronting them with their absolutely shameless hypocrisy on the filibuster. And instead, what the reporters are doing is they're running around lobbying them on an everyday basis to blow up the filibuster because that's what the media wants to see because they're left-wing activists is it sort of a feedback loop at play yeah i mean briefly yes um the first problem is that the press is in line with many democratic games and tends when it is critical of democratic presidents to be critical from the left um the second the uh, biden administration won the white house because it realized that twitter wasn't the real world and it is in dire straits now uh, that it is in the White House uh, because it's forgotten that. And That's exactly I think what right. you're seeing is the privileging of Twitter concerns and sort of progressive uh, uh, pie-in-the-sky thinking above what's in front of their eyes. Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. His four-week course starts soon, later this month, The Right to Bear Arms, a History, getchapter.app. You can also find Charles on social media and sign up that way. Charles, really appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again in the weeks to come. Great. Thank you so much. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas has now scored back-to-back victories against fact-checkers. Remember, they all fact-checked him for spreading false, dangerous, conspiratorial misinformation on the lab leak theory in the Wuhan lab and the coronavirus origins, that eventually did not age well. So they had to revise the fact check. 
Similarly, it's in the news this week that the Boston Marathon bomber, the jihadist who killed multiple Americans and wounded dozens of others years ago, he's sitting in prison. His co-conspirator and brother is dead. There was a warning from Tom Cotton that that Boston bomber specifically and many other felons could get stimulus checks under the Democrats' so-called COVID relief bill that they passed on a party-line vote early last year, early in the Biden administration. And at the time, the Washington Post fact-checker gave Cotton two Pinocchios for that claim because Cotton had put forward an amendment that would have made clear and specifically stated that prisoners, like the Boston bomber, he actually specified that guy as an example that they could not get stimulus or COVID money. And every single Democratic senator voted no. They all voted down that amendment. And the argument was from them and the Washington Post, this is preposterous, it'll never happen. Well, guess what? The Boston bomber sitting in prison got a COVID stimulus influx of cash. And apparently he used some of it to buy gifts for his siblings. This is someone who owes $100 million of restitution to the families of the victims that he killed and to the living victims. And then he got some taxpayer money outrageously in this sloppy boondoggle slush fund from the Democrats. And he bought some trinkets and gifts for his family. And so Tom Cotton tweeted the other day, now that the Boston bomber has received his stimulus check from the Biden slush fund, I'm looking forward to the Washington Post updating this fact check. And he had a screenshot of it. Remember, he writes, every Democratic senator voted against my amendment that would have stopped prisoners from getting checks. And the Washington Post fact checker has, in fact, updated the fact check. Just like they're going to have to update a bunch of these fact checks now that fully boosted is going to start being defined as three shots. Ron DeSantis predicted that. He was fact-checked false. Now it's happening. How many of these false misinformation, fact-checked wrong things actually turn out to be right from Republicans? It's like there's this hair-trigger effort from the Democratic media and their fact-checkers on guard at all times to swat down even accurate claims by finding some nonsense context, quote-unquote, to make a factual claim less than factual, allegedly. We had Mark Hemingway on the show recently about this. This one is pretty amazing because the scare story from Republicans and Cotton in pushing this amendment to the Democrat-only slush fund so-called COVID bill, meanwhile, where's your test, was that felons could get some of these benefits, and he happened to choose, specifically, of all the felons in the country, the Boston bomber. And that was rejected, treated as ridiculous, preposterous, couldn't happen. Then all these Democrats voted against his amendment, and guess who got that stimulus, that stimmy check? The terrorist who blew up the Boston Marathon. And every last Democrat, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Cortez Masto in Nevada, Warnock in Georgia, Hassan in New Hampshire, all of them, even the so-called moderates, they all voted together, along with Chuck Schumer, to kill an amendment that actually would have prevented precisely what Cotton warned about. 
And now, in real time, the fact checks are changing after the fact. Because they have to. Because reality is catching up with the predictions and the so-called corrections. So would that be Tom Cotton 3, fact checkers, and New York Times 0? Cumulatively at this point, that sounds like the scoreboard to me. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. We are joined now by Congressman Darren LaHood, Republican out in Illinois, their 16th district in the land of Lincoln. And he joins us now. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, Guy. Great to be with you and your listeners today. So it's now day three of closed public schools in Chicago. Round two, round three, whatever it is at this point with the Chicago Teachers Union deciding to lock students out of classrooms in the name of so-called safety and health. This is so unpopular, so untenable, that at this point in time in 2022, even a lot of Democrats are opposing them, and yet they are marching forward with this. Your reaction as a member of Illinois' congressional delegation? Well, Guy, it's really, really sad for the students uh, in the Chicago public schools And really what the Chicago Teachers Union is doing is stealing the future of Chicago public school students. The impact that uh, their selfish behavior is having on kids from a mental standpoint, from a physical standpoint, and from a learning loss is really morally wrong. Um, And and frankly, uh, I want to see where is Joe Biden? Why isn't he not speaking out on this? Where is Kamala Harris speaking out on this? I mean, this is a tragedy. Uh, and, and, and the uh, irony of all of this guy is it goes, the CDC guidelines call for students to be in school. All the protocols are being met, but again, you have this, uh, rogue teachers union in the city of Chicago that is doing this to the students. Well, they're claiming that the schools aren't ready and they need more money and they need more preparedness funding or whatever. They just spent trillions. I mean, the Republicans and the Democrats came together for trillions in relief last year, and then I guess in 2020, and then last year, 2021, the Democrats spent $2 trillion more trillion on this slush fund that sent a bunch of money all over the place, not really targeted at all toward COVID. In fact, Republicans had offered more targeted bills. Those were filibustered by the Senate Democrats. I know that's now a super racist thing or something when... The other party uses it. When Democrats use it, it's fine. But they spent trillions of dollars. Where did it go? If we don't have tests in this country and you've got teachers unions claiming that the schools aren't prepared, even though they got roughly a million dollars per school, if you do the math, it almost seems as if that was not money well spent and it was a huge, wasteful boondoggle. That's kind of what it seems like sitting here. Well, Guy, you're exactly right. We, we have spent literally trillions of dollars that went to schools to help put them in the position. And by the way, it's being done everywhere else uh, in terms of, of uh, having our schools ready. Uh, I mean, let's remember, Guy, the cost of missing school far outweighs the benefits of, of remote learning. Remote learning has been a failure. Uh, and we spent this money so that kids could be in the classroom. Um, and, and the other thing that's, uh, I think, worth mentioning here. If you look at the last year and a half that our schools have been affected by COVID, 
in in the city of Chicago, we've had seven kids die of COVID. During that same period, we've had 145 kids die of homicide. 145 kids in a year and a half died of homicide in Chicago. Where is the focus on that? Why are we not talking about that? Instead, we're focused, again, I'm not minimizing seven kids dying of COVID, but that needs to be emphasized. And that's the reality of the ridiculousness of these unions and these yep. unions bosses and what they're doing. It's now you add a tiny bit of context to any of this and it blows up the weakness of their arguments and they say, oh, well, he doesn't care about those seven kids. That's not true. But we're talking about forming public policy here. The point is a completely important and legitimate one. Is there a point at which some of your Democratic colleagues start to come around to the view that school choice advocates were right all along? I mean, it it seems so unfair to these families. I've got friends in Chicago who have the means to send their kids to private school. Some of them are still in public schools, but they're sort of wavering on that. There are lots of families who are just stuck. Where you live is where the schools are, and you have no opportunity. It's basically defined by your zip code. And it's a monopoly where you have the teachers union just deciding on a whim that they're going to find a new excuse not to show up for work and to harm these kids again. It seems to me that the argument has never been clearer or stronger to fund students, not systems, that are beholden to these special interest groups. I know that's been something conservatives have talked about for a long time. There's been opposition on the left primarily. Is that starting to change in your mind? Well, it has to, uh, particularly when you look at, um, you know, we're really compromising the future uh, of a generation of kids, particularly in our urban areas. And what we're doing is not working. And kids being out of the classroom uh, in what they call remote learning, I mean, literally these kids aren't going to be able to go to the next grade or to graduate eighth grade or to graduate high school. And so uh, that should be a wake-up call to all of us. And, or and the, the thing is, or they will promote them, right? Social promotion, they've been watering down standards in a lot of places to make up for their own failures as educators. And rather than actually holding anyone accountable, they're saying, well, let's just pad the stats and let everyone move on to the next grade level, even though they're not at the sort of level that they should be in terms of achievement, in terms of hitting benchmarks. It's just defining down success. It's normalizing failure. It's a really disgraceful thing. And the teachers unions, is particularly what we're seeing now in Chicago, this is at their feet. This is on their hands. One more point on this, Congressman, I want to ask you. Yesterday, I'm not a regular viewer of The View. That might come as a surprise. But it's a show that bills itself as this chat show for women, mothers in particular. A lot of moms are watching The View. They had a conversation about the Chicago Teachers Union and the strike and keeping kids out of school. Everyone on the panel supported the public school teachers union, as opposed to even the leadership of the city of Chicago. And the outraged parents and constituents, there was this groupthink with blinders on on the set of The View, including their so-called conservative, Ana Navarro, who's just a a liberal Democrat, they were all unanimous that the teachers' unions are in the right and sort of solidarity forever with these unions. How does that groupthink and that tunnel vision on that mainstream media show compare with what you're hearing from parents and constituents living in Illinois? Well, listen, what gives me a bit of hope and optimism is 
when I'm in my district, whether it's Peoria, Illinois, or whether it's Springfield, Illinois, or in the heartland, people are outraged by this. And I think what we saw this past November in Virginia and in New Jersey is that regardless of the media and, and the wokeism and the liberal people that are on the view, average parents and, and, and particularly parents of students, they woke up and said, enough is enough. You saw it in Virginia. And where Biden won uh, Virginia by 10 or 11 points, we got a new governor there. And I think that's what you're going to see this next election in, in beating J.B. Pritzker in Illinois and beating other liberal blue state governors and other elected officials. That has to be the wake-up call. Right, and I speaking, see it every day in my district. I was going to say, Congressman, uh, last question here because we're almost out of time. And speaking of the elections, since you referenced them, Illinois, and I mentioned this a moment ago, when it comes to the filibuster, right, it's good and righteous in the Senate when Democrats do it. Republicans do it. It's a relic of Jim Crow and racist, and it needs to be reformed and done away with. Similarly, when Republicans are engaged in redistricting, that is partisan gerrymandering against democracy. But when Democrats do it, suddenly it seems perfectly fine, and the media is almost rooting for them to screw over the Republicans as hard as they possibly can. Of course, the power to redistrict is based on elections. It's a very blue state in Illinois. How has the gerrymander, and they've done some hardcore stuff, the Democrats in your state, how has that impacted you and your district heading into this upcoming cycle? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, if you want to look at blatant gerrymandering, look at Illinois and what the Chicago Democrats, and J.B. Pritzker ran four years ago saying he was going to support fair maps. Uh, it was in foreign independent commission. Well, he signed the gerrymandered bill. And I, I'm waiting for Eric Holder and Merrick Garland to come in and file the lawsuit uh, <laughs> that they've done in every other state. But I got a feeling we're never yeah, going to get Mark that. Elias gonna, on the case. Yeah, you're going to wait a long time. I, Don't hold your breath, Congressman. Well, well, I agree, Guy. But but here's the other thing. There are there are two or three independent um, gerrymandered groups that look at um, how these districts are drawn. Uh, they gave Illinois, all three of them, an F minus, an F minus. And so, I mean, it is blatant gerrymandered. And so, listen, I, I, I am a supporter of Fair Maps. I have been a supporter of an independent commission. I'm going to continue to do that. The district that I was drawn uh, is about half of my current district. It's, it's half new, but it, it's the district that I'm going to run in. And I'm already working hard to earn the trust of the voters there. Uh, but I'm going to talk about all the conservative issues that I've um, supported and advocated for, whether it is school choice, whether it is supporting law enforcement, whether it is getting rid of um, CRT, whether it is supporting patriotic uh, education in K through 12. Those are issues that my voters care about, and I'm going to continue. And we'll see um, what the voters do next November in my district, but uh, I hope to earn their trust. Yeah, and look, I lived in Illinois for seven years, for college and beyond. I have some great memories there. I have some great friends there. But I'm not surprised to see the state of Illinois awarded an F-minus in anything, frankly, these days. The leadership has just been atrocious, and I know that you're uh, swimming upstream there in the land of Lincoln. Congressman Darren LaHood, Republican, Illinois, 16th District. Congressman, appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Guy. Take care. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Joining us is Larry Kudlow, host of Fox Business Network's Kudlow, which airs at 4 p.m. Eastern Time this hour. So through the dark arts of radio, we magically have him here. He's also the former director of the National Economic Council under the Trump administration. Larry, great to have you back. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you, Guy. 
We opened the show today talking about the jobs report. 199,000 new jobs created, well short of expectations, less than half of what economists were anticipating. Your reaction to that miss? Yeah, look, it, <laughs> um, here's a key point. There's two surveys. All right, one's the so-called establishment payroll survey. Those are the big companies. The second survey is the so-called household employment survey, uh, where they call up individuals directly, people that work in small businesses, own their own businesses. Anyway, that was up 651,000. It's a very big number. And it's from the household survey that we get the unemployment rate, which fell from 4.2 to 3.9. And on top of that, uh, wages rose substantially. Average hourly earnings are up six-tenths of 1%, 6.2% annually for the last three months. That's a big number. And hours worked are up, guys. So the total wage income proxy is 9% growth at an annual rate. So I'm just saying uh, people just look at the top line. They need to look under the hood at the important stuff. This was a much stronger report than is being played. And inflation is the problem, not employment. Yeah, so actually, it's totally fair, and we did point out earlier that there's some good stuff in the report as well. The fact that they missed as badly as they did on the top-line number, that is obviously news. That's part of the headline. It's not the whole story. Wages going up, that's also good. That was the trend that started after the Republican tax cuts and deregulation and the economy that was going so well in 2019. Finally, we saw wages growing at a clip that workers had been waiting for. That got interrupted by the pandemic. It's starting to really bounce back again. The difference is, as you point out this time, it's being outpaced by inflation, where wages are going up, but the cost of things are going up even more. That's, I think, a real frustration for a lot of the American people. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem. The problem is too much government spending and too much Federal Reserve money printing. And they got a big problem on their hands. I mean, the latest CPI report for the 12 months of November was 7%. You're going to get a new CPI report uh, in about a week or so. It's going to be at least 7%. And that's the problem. That's public enemy number one. And that's why Joe Manchin correctly is opposed to another $5 trillion spending bill. By the way, Guy, even the, even the non-farm payrolls, uh, there was an upward revision of 141,000 from the prior month. So I'm just saying, you know, you look, the job story is, is strong. If, if anything, it's almost overheating. Uh, that's why the quit the quits rate is so high. People say, well, people, uh, the quits rate is bad. Everybody's leaving. That, that's not true. They're leaving one job to get a higher paying job. They're not dropping out of the labor force. And like I say, 3.9% unemployment is historically very low. So You know what's interesting, Larry, about that? Because you have uh, the Biden administration, in fact, the president himself today coming out, attacking Republicans. He's saying that this recovery is happening because of the $2 trillion that Democrats spent earlier this year, which is ludicrous, but that's the story that he's trying to tell. He's lambasting Republicans for being against all the things that have helped and obstructing the successful recovery because they voted against this massive slush fund. Larry, and this is the point I made earlier, if you look at the driving engine 
of our recovery in this country. It's red states run by Republican governors with conservative policies. He should be thanking Republicans that things are going this well. It's them, not him. Well, that's a good point. That's an important point. And by the way, those red state Republicans ended the overly generous unemployment benefits. That's right. uh, Several months earlier. And what the studies show is that that brought people back to work. Okay, instead of paying them not to work, that brought them back to work and at higher wages. Look, you know, in some ways, guys, Joe Biden was handed a silver platter by Donald Trump, whose tax cuts and deregulation and energy independence, you know, pulled us, first of all, gave us a strong recovery, and second of all, pulled us out of the pandemic problem very rapidly. We had a V-shaped recovery. Now, it's just not credible that more government spending uh, is the key. I mean, right, especially when people there, don't know where the hell the money even went. We were looking around for tests everywhere. You've got teachers claiming still that the schools don't have enough money. Everyone's looking around saying that trillions have been spent. Where did it go? It's just, I think, a fantasy land that they're living in. It's a partisan attack. I think a lot of voters are deeply skeptical of it, as they should be. Larry, quickly, last question. I was on your show earlier this week on the TV side, and you noted that despite all of this buzz in Washington about new negotiations and resurrecting the Build Back Better plan and you know trillions of dollars might get spent after all, Joe Manchin said this week, it didn't get a lot of attention, but you jumped on it immediately. He said, I have not had a single discussion with the White House on any of this since... I made my announcement that I was a no. That seems like pretty big news. Last word to you, Larry. It was big news. And listen, Manchin's been right. He knows that more government spending creates higher inflation, and he doesn't want another $5 trillion plus, you know, the absence of workfare. You know, you get these Democratic leagues, Axios and other outlets. Manchin has said no, and the Bidens are going to have to live with that because We've saved America. We're killing the bill. They may try to vote again in uh, this month or next month, guy, but the bill is dead. The bill is dead, and they should quit lying about it. And by the way, I hope this whole federal election bill and filibuster change is also dead. Yeah, I think it probably is, and I hope you're right. You're declaring it dead from your lips to God's ears. Larry Kudlow, Fox Business Network Kudlow, every weekday, 4 p.m. Eastern time. Larry, always love it. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. You bet. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Shannon Bream will be here. A big day at the Supreme Court. Some wild things being said and asserted by one justice in particular. We'll tell you what happened straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show. So glad to have you here. One hour left together in the broadcast week. Glad that you're spending it with us. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast, always free. 
on demand, no charge to you, including over the weekend Bonus Benson, which you never want to miss Bonus Benson. It's a hit. And this hour is sponsored by The Finish Long Drink, which is so good. Unless you're on dry January or under the age of 21, we recommend it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can order online as well. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. And joining us now is Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent and anchor of Fox News Channel's Fox News at Night, every weekday at midnight. Also, host of the hit podcast, Live in the Bream. She's a best-selling author, most recently, of The Women of the Bible Speak. And Shannon Bream, welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Happy New Year to you. Always my pleasure. Happy New Year. Does it feel weird being called the evil Shannon Bream right before your show every night by Greg Gutfeld? You know, I've come to embrace it and then spend my life trying to disprove it. Well, you know, I figured I like you... it set the bar for me. You've got to prove to people you're not evil, and so I'm constantly working on that. Well, I think the reason, it's pretty obvious to me at least, the reason that he says that is because you are the least evil, nicest person perhaps at the whole network. So calling you evil is unto itself kind of hilarious. That's my take on it. Yes, I love it. I, I'm hoping that, as I know and love Greg, it's very tongue-in-cheek. Yes, I would say that's a pretty safe bet. All right, Shannon, let's talk about what happened today at the Supreme Court. I know there was a highly anticipated and much-watched oral argument over various COVID-related mandates. What specifically was at issue before the court today? What were the justices considering? So we've got two, the OSHA workplace mandate, which would say if you've got 100 or more employees, everyone has to be vaccinated or you have to set up a masking and testing structure for those who are unvaccinated. The other one is basically any federal money that flows to a Medicare or Medicaid-related um, facility. So that's basically going to be any hospital, many doctor's offices, clinics, any employee, contractor, or volunteer who works there at those facilities must be vaccinated. So two different arguments. I think the court could split on these two, but very big deal involving millions, tens of billions of Americans. It is really hard to divine what the justices are going to do and how they're going to rule based on oral arguments. I know you and I had this conversation when we were discussing the abortion case a number of weeks ago at this point, where at least it started to seem like it was pretty clear that there was at least a 5-4 majority, maybe a 6-3 majority to uphold the Mississippi law, maybe go further on the abortion side of things. Was it quite that clear cut today or was it foggier and murkier where people aren't exactly sure what the justices are going to do? I think some of them we know for sure what they're going to do. Um, the left-leaning or Democratic-appointed justices on the bench made very clear they can't even believe that somebody is coming to the court to ask for a stay of these mandates. I mean, Justice Breyer found it kind of incredible that you would even ask. Um, I, and I would say that a number of the justices made statements that many people say are factually incorrect with respect to where we are with some of these COVID things. And clearly they're very concerned, as everybody should be. This is a very serious situation. But the question gets to whether or not the federal government can do what it's trying to do, which, you know, we saw the retweet by Ron Klain from over at the White House essentially saying it's, it, this is a federal workaround by going to these agencies and saying the federal government has said, the Biden administration has said, we can't do this. There's not going to be a federal vaccine mandate, but they're essentially doing it through these agencies. And right, Klain almost admitted it on today. Twitter. Yeah, basically. So Justice Gorsuch brought that up today and he said it seems like the federal government is sort of doing a workaround by going through these agencies. So plenty of skepticism. I'd say 
the OSHA workplace mandate case, um, there are probably, if I'm guessing, uh, you know, it's tilting in the direction of putting a stay on that mandate, but certainly not clear cut. I think it, on the healthcare worker vaccine mandate, I think the government, the Biden administration, had a much stronger argument there, and it seemed like more justices were leaning to being open towards that, that it made sense um, to require that healthcare workers be vaccinated. Last time we spoke related to SCOTUS, as I alluded to, it was on the abortion case, the Mississippi case, and I guess there's also a Texas case. But a lot of it was like, okay, now we wait, right? We wait until June, and it'll be one of the final decisions announced. Everyone will be on pins and needles. Is Roe versus Wade overturned? Is it altered? What's the outcome there? That's a long time from now, months. This is more immediate. Do we wait until June for these decisions, or would they potentially release, you know, their verdict sooner here? Yes, much sooner, I'd predict. Um, They have fast-tracked everything about these cases because, you know, we have deadlines that are kicking in in just a couple of days for part of these mandates. So time is of the essence. There was even conversation at the court today about whether they do an administrative stay, just saying, hold on, we're not making a decision in this case, but we need a few more days to actually sift through this information and make a decision. So it's, it's possible they do just a quick pause kind of like those mini little funding bills they do on the Hill to buy themselves three or four days. Right, a continuing um, resolution. Just, right, a, a little CR action. Um, we may have the equivalent <laughs> over the Supreme Court. Um, but I think this is a matter of getting a decision within days, certainly not months. Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox News. Her show, Fox News at Night, airs at midnight every weeknight. The podcast, the book, all the things. Shannon, so glad to have you. Thanks for all the info. See you soon. Sounds good. Now, I want to pick up on something that Shannon said just a moment ago, where she, and I think she was being generous, she was being very kind, living up to her evil moniker, saying that some people have said that arguments being made by some of the justices were factually wrong. I'm going to take it a step further, and I think it's fully justified, and saying it's not many people are saying it was factually wrong. The facts are the facts. And Justice Sotomayor in particular was just embarrassingly wrong on the facts, repeatedly. Justice Breyer at one point talked about 75 million new cases in the United States. I think that was probably just a misspeak. That was a Biden-Pelosi-style misspeak where they just like add a zero or two zeros and just keep trucking along. That happens from time to time. But Sotomayor was on a more substantive level wrong almost to a shocking degree because i know sometimes you'll hear critics of the court and some people kind of whisper in town and they say you know she's not really the brightest of the justices and you never know if that's sort of a partisan or ideological thing you don't like the judgments that she you know hands down the rulings so you start questioning other things i would say on a somewhat regular basis her arguments are not the strongest high on passion high on emotion, low on sort of robust legal reasoning and strong logic. And today was, I think, a clear illustration of that. She was passionately in favor of these government mandates against COVID because in her mind, and this is very true of sort of like the blue lefty progressive bubble that she absolutely inhabits. She may be right in the middle of it, actually. Right. She lives in Washington, D.C. She's from New York City. She is 
a left-wing Supreme Court justice with a lifetime appointment. She's surrounded by people who agree with her, except for her colleagues, that she inveighs against all the time and doesn't seem to uh, necessarily understand or characterize their arguments terribly well or fairly a lot of the time. In any case, she is very much in that insular bubble. And because of that, she believes, as many of that tribe do, that more government edicts and mandates are good for public health and safety on COVID. Because it's true. It's true because it's obviously true, because how could it not be true? Sort of this tautological, self-fulfilling cycle. And because she apparently believes this very strenuously, she was just sort of emoting and throwing out statistics that were, I have no idea where she came up with them, just completely invented. So one example of what she said was Sotomayor at one point made the assertion during oral arguments today that Omicron, the current variant, is as deadly as Delta, the previous variant that was significantly more deadly over the summer, for example. It really did a number on a lot of states down south. If you listen to this show even occasionally or read a headline even occasionally, you know that's not true. Omicron is substantially, verifiably, proven to be through oodles and oodles of data from South Africa to the UK to the US and beyond, significantly less deadly than Delta. That's one of the pieces of good news about Omicron. It's part of the reason why we're not in a much bigger panic right now, despite some of the best efforts of certain people, including some in the press, because yes, you have this explosion of cases and record high case counts, But people aren't freaking out about it because they are much less likely to die from Omicron than they were from the original Wuhan variant or even from Delta. I mean, every single piece of data makes that clear from anecdotal examples to nationwide data to laboratory studies. They all confirm that what Sotomayor said is just wrong. So you had an oral argument, think about this, an oral argument at the highest court in the land, you had a sitting Supreme Court justice spewing absolute COVID misinformation. I wonder if she'll get flagged on social media by Twitter. Spewing misinformation, verifiably false, as part of her legal reasoning, it would seem, to keep constitutionally dubious government mandates in place. Does that inspire confidence? Well, she wasn't done. At one point, she was making a very strange point. She asked the question, why is a human not like a machine when it is spewing blood-borne viruses? I'm not quite sure what her point was asking about human versus machine. That's odd. I don't know what the robot idea was there. But this probably was a misspeak kind of like Justice Breyer misspeaking on 75 million new cases. But, I mean, my goodness. How do you misspeak and call COVID bloodborne? Have we not all been alive for the last two years? Don't we know that it's airborne? It comes from breathing. This is why they have us wear masks, even though masks appear to be of scant assistance, especially against Omicron. But it's Stuff that we breathe out and it's in the air, it's not a bloodborne illness. It's not a bloodborne virus. 
but she at one point either misspoke or was very confused and referred to it that way. And then this one is probably the worst example of what she did. And you sort of wonder, did the wise Latina, as they called her, Justice, do any preparation? Or is she just sort of winging it and phoning it in at this point? Lifetime appointment. I'm just going to show up and speak my truth. She said, she claimed that over 100,000 American children are currently in serious condition from COVID with, quote, many on ventilators. 100,000 kids in serious condition, many on ventilators. That is just not even close to being accurate. So, for example, at the very end of December, the final week of December, there were 325,000 weekly pediatric cases across the country. 325,000. If her numbers were right, about a third of those would be so serious that kids are in the hospital for COVID. And you'd have, what, tens of thousands of kids on ventilators. But it's not true. We know, thankfully, this is true of Omicron, which is less deadly. Cough, cough, Justice Sotomayor. But it's also true of the previous variants as well. Kids overwhelmingly, almost universally, almost all of the cases are mild. Asymptomatic, mild, maybe moderate at worst, not severe. That is true of pediatric cases. As a matter of fact, the current national pediatric COVID census in hospitals, according to HHS, I got this from Phil Kirpin, is 3,300. There are 3,300 kids across the country in the hospital with COVID. And we know that a lot of those, I say most of those, in fact, based on what we know, are incidental positive tests. They show up at the hospital for another reason. They get the automatic test, comes back positive, but that's not why they're in the hospital. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, every single one of them was in the hospital due to COVID, which we know is not true. Cut that number in half or more. But it's 3,300 nationwide right now. That is not even in the same universe as 100,000 who would be in serious condition, according to the justice, in order to justify, out loud, in oral argument, the government forcing people to do things. You have one of nine robed judges, robed lawyers, who ultimately control so many things in this country, one of them at least has been fed a bill of goods or has not even bothered to look up the science or understand what the hell she's talking about. Again, did she do any preparation here? Or did she just decide to show up and invent statistics out of her rear end and bang on the table like a lunatic because she cares so much about the kids? She cares so much she's willing to just lie about the numbers. 100,000 kids in serious condition with many on ventilators. Nope. Not even close. She was off probably by about a factor of a hundred. That might be close enough for government work, especially if you're a left-wing justice on the Supreme Court. Not a great look for Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor today at the Supreme Court. Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Just a little snippet from my own life that I thought I would share with you here this evening. We've talked about this before, and I almost felt ashamed because I've said it on the air. 
in an argument against overly onerous restrictions during the COVID era, one of the points that's been made by medical professionals is because everyone's so freaked out over COVID, you've had people putting off essential treatment and testing and early detection on various other very dangerous maladies in their lives. We've all sort of frozen in place, and that's taken a toll on people's health in other areas, not related to COVID, cancer screenings, that sort of thing. It's real. And we've made that argument here. We've had doctors on the show make the argument, and I've been nodding along. I realized at one point, I was reading a book over the holidays, and it mentioned at one point a little anecdote about someone who had melanoma, skin cancer, in the book. And my family has a history with melanoma. It can be extremely dangerous. It can strike really at a young age. I'm supposed to get screened just to check my skin and my moles really annually, and I hadn't done it since before COVID. And even though I was out here talking about it, I was making the same mistake myself. So because I read it in the book, I decided to schedule an appointment. I went this morning. Everything's fine. But they told me it's been three and a half years since you were in here. You really should come every year, and I will make a point to do that. I just wanted to raise my hand and admit that, and hopefully that's an example, maybe an inspiration to you guys too. So we've got to take care and take charge of our own health, and we can't let COVID hysteria or even real COVID concerns get in the way of some really essential stuff. Thankfully, everything was clear, but you you never know. That's the point. But the clean bill of health on that front, I guess, is the happy news here in the happy hour, which continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Chugging along here toward the weekend on the happy hour. Earlier today, we had on our Fox News radio colleague, Jimmy Fallon, host of Fox Across America, on many of these same stations, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern daily. Always a blast with Jimmy. He and I are co-hosting with two others. The big show this weekend. Here's my conversation with Jimmy Fallon earlier. Your voice sounds a little, uh, little under the weather. No, I'm just, you know what it is, man. No, I'm, uh, I'm a little beat up still because I'm, I'm still sobering up from last week's New Year's Eve down in Nashville. And it's funny when you guys came back from break to save a horse ride at Cowboy. I had like yeah. PTSD because I saw John Rich sing that live, which was wonderful. What's not wonderful is there's a level of passion in Nashville, guy. That's like somewhere between hospitality and a hazing ritual. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And yep. then people are just firing beers at you out of a t-shirt gun. I'm pretty beat up. There, there's a Vegas mentality there to some extent. Nash Vegas is what they call it. Yes. Well, you know what the difference is? Like Vegas, I, I mean, not to take it there, uh, but like Vegas, you come home with like an STD and a baby from a stripper. Nashville, you come home with a shot glass and a pair of cowboy boots, you know? So it's a tamer Vegas is what I think. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> we didn't dump out. I thought that was it. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Thank you for that. We're just learning so many things about Jimmy. <laughs> See, we're not going to be hosting the show together in studio, which is fine, because uh, that's great. I just feel like you might need to get tested. Not for COVID. <laughs> another kind of testing, apparently. Uh, so we will, be, we will be on TV together tomorrow and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern, the big show. And it's, it's four of us. So who else is on? Is it Lisa Booth, I think? Alicia Acuna will be mm-hmm. the ladies. And then we'll be and the you. dudes on the show. And this is your debut. On the big show, yes. is that correct? This Are is, you uh, excited? Big... Are you nervous? 
I'm pumped up. The issue for real, Guy Benson, and you know this about me, is Sunday is NFL Sunday. And the idea of having me on live television while my gambling bets are paying off in real time, one way or the other, is risky. (laughs) Like, Saturday's going to be great. Sunday, we're a missed field goal away from an F-bomb on live TV. I've been upfront about that. The good news about that, though, is the late games start at 4, right? Mm-hmm. Or like the, like the second slate yeah. of games. And the first slate of games should be ending right around then. So you, they kick are you off saying like, one. my fate isn't hanging in the balance, you're saying, in the hour that we're on the air? Right, we're on the air from 5 to 6 p.m. <laughs> so unless you have prop bets about like how many field goals are made in a quarter or something, and your whole, you know, your house... And your mortgage is dependent on that. I think you'll probably be okay. And then you degenerate gambler can run out of the studio at 6 p.m. and go catch the fourth quarter and then decide whether or not you have to jump off a bridge. <laughs> it's never a bridge. I usually I'm resourceful. I'll usually start by putting on the blonde wig and walking 11th Avenue for a little while trying to make money the old fashioned way. Yeah. Uh, but if it doesn't come to that, if it's a slow okay, business you. week. Yeah. Get tested, folks. Twice over now. Back-to-back references. Uh, So I want to talk to you about this, Jimmy. Did you see the story that the Democrats are so desperate to try to change the mind of Joe Manchin on ending the filibuster? By the way, it's not just him. It's also Kirsten Sinema. There's a few other Democrats who don't want to do it. But it's like, you know, all Manchin all the time. So they've gone all out. Politico has this story. It's just this pile-on where they're trying to convince him to do a change to the filibuster rules, and they have some of his, like, it's like everyone, like his childhood friends, they're reaching out, they're like, you know, they they can get, like, Princess Leia, you can get, you know, one of those uh, holograms of his his deceased mother. They're like, please, Joe, do it. They've got Bill Clinton calling the guy. They've got Oprah calling the guy. I think he loves the attention. I just think this is, this is weird. To bring in, well, yeah, you know, Oprah yeah, is Oprah the big swing vote in West Virginia. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, that's hilarious, by the way. Um, this is such an indictment of their policies as a whole. Like you're not busting out Oprah because you're having an easy time selling your ideas. Obviously, you're busting them out because nothing else is working. This is where we are now, you know, and. Right. It, what they're Break doing glass. in the Break Oprah yeah. glass in case of emergency. <laughs> in case of emergency, shove Stedman out of the way and break glass. But yes, <laughs> this is what happens is that they're pressuring Manchin and Cinema the way they've pressured everybody. I mean, the business model for them the last four years has been social pressure campaigns. That's a lot of what identity politics is, is vote with us or you're a monster, you know. And they're doing that to Manchin, but they won't break because the, obviously the superpower he has uh, is one, obviously. It's not a superpower that he likes attention, but he clearly does. But two, uh, representing a state like West Virginia, he doesn't care because nobody in West Virginia cares. There's no world where he becomes less popular in West Virginia if he doesn't side with this. And, of course, you know, and you've mentioned the hypocrisy of Chuck Schumer even wanting to do away with the filibuster after all of those impassioned pleas he made about keeping it back when Republicans were floating the idea. And it's like some people, thank God, and I hopefully this leads to more. Some people are above, you know, the chicanery, the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy of Washington. And we actually need more Joe Manchins. It's not something yeah. I ever thought I'd hear myself say. But wouldn't you love it if we could get a few more Joe Manchins out there and a few less? Oh, I don't know. Marjorie Taylor Greens, to be fair about our own party. Yeah. No, I mean, sign me up for all of that. What you just described. I'd like more sensible Republicans and yep. fewer 
nonsensible Democrats, you also referenced Chuck Schumer. I mean, he literally he literally called a proposed Republican idea to limit the judicial filibuster doomsday for democracy. That was his term. He said it was banana republic dictator stuff. The Republicans didn't do it, by the way. Then the Democrats did it, and he voted for it. Then he said, oh, I regret that. We shouldn't have done it. Now he wants to do it again, and they're, I guess, dispatching Oprah and to do this now on legislation. <laughs> like, is there, well, you want like, to know what yeah, Please explain. Please explain to me, like, if they're going to – because the squad's saying we, we, we have to – we have to challenge these people. We need primary challenges. What is the ad going to look like in West Virginia in a primary election against Joe Manchin? Joe Manchin said no to Oprah on the filibuster. Like, is that going to move one professor at the University of West Virginia? It's going to move no. one vote? No, they are keg rolling right now. But what they're betting on, uh, and this is, you know, this this is part of politics that, you know, I kind of learned and absorbed as a cab driver back in the era of Obama. Whenever you have a transformative candidate or a transformative person involved in politics, it brings so many new people to the conversation who have no background in the precedence. So like what they're banking on by bringing in Oprah is creating this whole new wave of voters who have no idea how hypocritical and shameful this is. All they know is Oprah's pushing for it, so yeah. it must be good. Yeah, and the they're big banking Bill Clinton, though, Chuck Schumer, Oprah constituency in <laughs> West Virginia. <laughs> That full exchange, Guy Benson, Jimmy Fail, a fun time, is available in its entirety, along with the rest of the show, every day, free of charge, on demand. It's the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, how long should you say Happy New Year? When does that start getting weird? How deep into January? Plus, is dry January already falling apart, falling right off the wagon? We'll have that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Happy Friday to all of you. Your first weekend of 2022 is straight ahead. We just have a few minutes left together. A reminder that the show is always available on the free podcast. If you missed any of it all week long, a big week of shows to start the new year. GuyBensonShow.com. Bonus Benson on the weekends. So we were having this conversation earlier, and I think that we are not fully in agreement, shockingly. The question was, because I've been saying to our guests throughout the week, Happy New Year, when I welcome them into the show. And this is an annual thing. How long do you say Happy New Year? Because there is a point where it starts to sound and feel weird. Right, like I'll have someone in late January, sometimes even February, say Happy New Year. I'm like, no. I think the first week of January, it's a total no-brainer. You start saying Happy New Year. This is the weird thing. You start saying Happy New Year probably around December 30th. At least I do. I don't even think about it. It just comes out. Right, It's almost New Year's Eve, and you just say Happy New Year. And it's sort of like, oh, that's a bit odd. Then you walk away. But that's totally socially acceptable. And then, of course, I would say January 1st through 7th, 8th, the first week for sure. The gray area is going to be next week and then into the following week. So solidly mid-January. What's the policy there? My overall thing, I think, I think, we'll see, is... I stop saying it as a regular 
greeting after the first week plus of the new year. But sometimes if I haven't seen someone or if I'm welcoming a guest onto the air that we haven't spoken with since the previous year, I might throw in a happy new year for another week, two at the most. I kind of feel like the third week of January is when it really needs to stop. That is my unofficial policy. Producer Christine, is that reasonable? Is there a cutoff? You love doing everything too long and too early. Do you start saying Happy New Year December 1st? I I do not, because don't forget I'm in full Christmas mode. Um, here's Yeah, I think I go a little too long. I'm probably still at the end of January. <laughs> so when you're emailing a guest to try to get oh, them to yeah. come on the show, it's like February 7th. You're like, Happy New Year. Are you free today? <laughs> yeah, or maybe... Yeah, it might be like, you know, uh, hey, so-and-so, like, you know, hope all is well. Happy New Year. Happy almost Valentine's Day. Can you do the show today? Yeah, I I feel bad for Carl Rove's assistant, for example. You must use all the various (laughs) greetings for that person. In your regular life, do you do that, too, or is that just like a professional email tick? No, I think that's more of a professional. Well, don't forget, I mean, I'm... I communicate with so many people so often. So, you know, all the people in my personal life, by the first week of January, I've already spoken to. So I've gotten the... Yeah, in many cases, they're no longer speaking to you, right? Like, by that point, it's like... (laughs) (laughs) But, no, I I think I definitely carry on the Happy New Year probably way too long. So, I don't know, maybe maybe this is the last week I'm going to do it, actually. Maybe next week, should I start Happy Valentine's Day? No, you should absolutely not do that because that's very strange and very premature. But in your mind, I think as long as you are still not drinking, it's probably still Happy New Year time because you're doing dry January. It's still going. Of course, it's because you're sick and have COVID, so you don't really have much of a choice. We were talking about this on the call earlier today because I am up against a bit of a dilemma, and so is Dan, our engineer, because... My plan, and I did not make any grand pronouncements like you did, but my plan was to hold off and not have an adult beverage until the 14th. Just do kind of a couple weeks of detox because you just have a lot at parties and various things over the holidays like let's let's take a break. I've been very diligent with my Peloton and my workouts and all that stuff. I also am working this weekend. I've got the big show. Saturday and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. I'll be one of the four co-hosts of that hour-long show on FNC. So I'll be working throughout the week, and I'm not going to go out and, like, you know, have any big parties or go wild. But we're having some friends over tonight for dinner, and they are really, really talented cooks, and they love our kitchen because they're in a smaller apartment setting with a smaller kitchen. We've got sort of a, a bigger main floor, open kitchen area that they love using. So we have this great little trade-off where they can come and use our kitchen and we can eat the food that they make, which is delicious. And we also happen to be very good friends and we enjoy their company. They were part of our little contingent that went to Greece in October. 
So we're really looking forward to it. And I don't know what's on the menu. I don't know what they're going to prepare. I do know that it will be amazing because they're batting a 1,000. They always cook something delicious. And it's Friday night. It's been a long week. It's been a heavy week with January 6th and all of that. And I just feel like whatever they cook will probably be enhanced by a glass or two, and that's it, of wine. And I'm just wondering, since I'm not even committed to dry January, and I was just randomly picking next weekend, why not have a glass of wine tonight? Is that is that a sellout? Meanwhile, Dan, you've got an event, what, tonight or tomorrow, where it's open bar. Yeah, that's tonight, and it's with my girlfriend's family and friends. It's just like kind of a smaller shindig kind of thing. But I was with you. I was going to do a couple weeks. But, you know, if you have a little wine, and by saying this, I feel like I'm enabling you um, <laughs> to to say, yes, you should. Um, but, yeah, no, I think, I think a couple glasses maybe might do it for me on a Friday night. And that's about it. And then I'll go back to, you know, being being good. Until next weekend. Until which was, next weekend. Right, which was the goal anyway. Christina, have the tables turned where our lady of temperance, Cookie, is going to scold us for having a glass or two of uh, mama's juice prematurely? I, can, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but fellas, come on. We're only at January 7th. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't commit to this. But, but you're my best friend, so and so is Dan now. So we were supposed to all do this together. No, we weren't. Um, you, well, and no, we aren't. In my mind, yeah, well, yeah, you sound like my husband, because my husband just said, oh, I'm definitely having a drink tonight. And I said, no, we're doing dry January. He goes, oh, no, no, no. Wait, is really he over? Is he done with COVID? Because he's had COVID. So, yes, he has had COVID, but he's not on medication, and he said he feels better. But we don't know if he still has it. Don't forget, we can't find tests. So, listen, I I highly suggest he does not partake in any alcohol beverages tonight. But, um, yeah, I'm going to be really judgmental of anybody this this month that's drinking. Uh-huh. I'm just, that's just the way I'm going to Now I be. feel bad. I don't. Yeah, you in should. Fact, you should. Your, your scorn makes me more likely to have maybe even a third glass tonight just because... I can, and I can report back. I actually had an open bottle of pretty good red wine that I opened New Year's Eve during dinner because we had dinner plans. We were going to go out and have a little date night, but Adam tested positive the day before, so we had to cancel our dinner reservation, and instead I ordered in some food, and I sat by myself and had dinner at the table, and I opened a bottle of wine, and I actually forgotten that I'd opened it. I had maybe not even half of the bottle, I had two glasses, and then I put the little cork thing in it, and I'd forgotten about it because I was then delivering dinners to Adam for the rest of the week, and I knew he was really feeling better. He said, by the way, I noticed that there was a bottle of wine downstairs. It's going to go, are you going to drink it? I said, no, it's a week night. It's a school night. I'm, I'm doing this quasi-early January dry thing. And so I just brought the half bottle up to him, and he polished it right off. So that problem was solved by Adam. And maybe we'll just open a nice bottle tonight or two. The other three people can have as much as they want. I'll have a glass or two. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll just have an ice-cold Coke Zero and press forward for another week. We'll see. I'm sure you're all on the edge of your seat. You can't wait to hear the verdict, which we might get to on Monday.
depending on how I'm feeling about my choices. Either way, please tune in. The Big Show, Saturday, Sunday, Fox News Channel, 5 p.m. Eastern. I'll be co-hosting this weekend. And then back here on the radio Monday. Have a great weekend. Good night. Thank you for listening. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.